Oh, do we have a treat for you today. So if you've been listening to our four-part investor series, last week was Paul Josephek. This week, well, this week we have got a treat with Bruce Cleveland. Bruce is one of the founding partners of Wildcat Ventures, and he has this unique understanding of what it's like to be in the space. Now, I'm not going to give too much away because he does such a fantastic job, which is why we asked him on the podcast. But this is a guy who was an early investor at companies like Marketo and Engageo. He worked at Siebel Systems, and he really understands this notion about the idea of attraction gap. He'll explain more as we listen to the podcast. You're interested in becoming a founder, a startup, an entrepreneur? Well, you're going to need some money, and you're going to need someone like Bruce in your corner, all today on the podcast. Welcome to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. Now here's your host, Todd Wills. Todd Wills. Hello, welcome to the podcast. As I said in the intro, very excited to have Bruce on. He has such a unique perspective on this idea of the traction gap, and he'll do a fantastic job of explaining it. But basically, think of it this way. You start raising some money, you start spending some money. And at some point, you start to see that line of credit start to run out. And what do you do? Well, you go back to your investors for more, or you become desperate, or you start putting your own money in. All three of those are hard places to be. So Bruce starts talking about how to invest, how to invest wisely, how to think about your company, and how to work with your VCs for a true and unique partnership. So with that, sit back, take a listen as Bruce walks us through Capital Venture Redefined, all today on the podcast. Today, we're talking with Bruce Cleveland, founding partner of Wildcat Venture Partners, a VC firm investing in early stage technology companies. Um, Bruce was an early investor in companies like Marketo and Workday and has significant operational experience as an early employee of Oracle and Siebel Systems, among others. So um, looking forward to talking with you today, Bruce. Welcome. Great. Thanks, Jill. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Wildcat Ventures, kind of what your focus is and what's unique about what your company is doing? Yeah. Um, so we uh, we started Wildcat a couple of years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Um, I joined three partners from a former firm. I came from another firm uh, to create a, um, I don't know whether we could call it a different kind of venture capital firm, because I'm not quite sure that they really are different. I mean, obviously, we want to find companies, want to invest in those, well, startups. And uh, in this particular case for us, we wanted to invest in early stage startups. So <clears throat> that's not unique in, it, in and of itself. The, um, and as you, you'll see and notice with all venture firms, they have capital to put to work and they have people who have um, either um, been part of companies or invested in companies that have done well. <clears throat> and as everyone will proclaim, they all add value <laughs> to their portfolio companies. And that value, I mean, we can debate whether there is value or not there. But one of the things, that's kind of the thread we wanted to pull on for ourselves. We're all, um, we're all former uh, operating people who have been part of companies that were really small that became billion-dollar outcomes. And while we um, were creating our firm in terms of, of governance and a variety of other things that we explored, one was that you know what were the share what were the learnings that we had as people who had been fortunate to be involved in in companies that were very early stage private uh, like Oracle or Siebel Systems or <clears throat> or Marketo et cetera how what were these shared learnings and and um, one of those 
was that we recognized that as a group um, where if you take a look at all startups from the time they uh, begin with ideation, um, more than uh, the, the data shows more than 90% fail. And they fail for a variety of different reasons, but the predominant reason as we took a look at the market data was um, they failed in what we would call the go-to-market phase. That is, the, the inability to generate traction for their products and services uh, to a point where uh, the venture community would f continue to finance them. So we took a look at our own personal track records. We each came with about 10 years of venture experience after our operating experiences. And um, we looked at our own personal records. And the same cohort where there's about a 90% failure rate, which is early stage, very early stage, um, we had roughly a 70% success rate. That is, our companies had gone on to become successful. And you know, it was companies like Marketo, companies like Coupa, companies like Workday, and, and many others that we had been investors in. And we decided that we would uh, really dig into that quite a bit as to why was that. And while we didn't come with common language, we did come with common learning experiences. And I happened to bring with me a, um, uh, a draft of a framework I had been developing for about uh, five years that tried to codify what these issues were. And um, and so we we all looked at this at this um, uh, framework and began to try to put some labels against it and some metrics and et cetera. And we 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 call this the traction gap framework. And if you think about it, there's the I have an idea and I need to bring a product to market and I, I want to think about the how am I going to do that? A lot of lessons there from Steve Blank and Eric Reese, Lean Startup, et cetera. A lot of help. Uh, plug and play, angel pad, Y Combinator, a lot of people will help you. And that go to product phase is is fairly well understood. A lot how to get to product market fit. The the let's skip to the third phase. The third phase is the go to scale phase. That is your product's actually working pretty well. You got a bunch of customers, you have a team, and um You've got a bunch of different problems to think about in terms of scaling, moving to new geographies, adding new product lines, et cetera. So there's a whole host of problems there in that go-to-scale phase. And one of my partners at Wildcat Venture Partners is Jeffrey Moore. And Jeff is a pretty well-known guy, pretty well-known author, crossing the chasms, still is well-engaged. Uh, he's the chief, one of the... the um, strategic advisors to Benioff at Salesforce. He speaks at many engagements. And, um, and his, his um, concepts and strategies that led to crossing the chasm, um, were, I think, have been now well-documented, and there's a lot of help there in that, in that go-to-scale phase. But in phase two, the go-to-market phase, this is where most um, early-stage startups get kneecapped. This is where we have really good product teams, and around those product teams, we hand them um, some capital, and we tell them to go build a company. The problem is, is that most of those teams either they went to a really good school um, or they were part of a really good company, and in neither case did they actually build a, a startup from scratch. And so there's really four fundamental pillars, four fundamental um, uh, issues that are effectively uh, present 
at any stage in a company. And, and these four pillars are product, revenue, team, and systems architecture. Now, each of those pillars needs to be fleshed out at different stages, but most importantly, what we recognize is that most of the teams we invest in are really good at product. They, know, they could tell you how they're going to build it. They can tell you what they believe the feature set's going to be, et cetera. But for the most part, none have built revenue architecture. They haven't built sales and marketing teams. They haven't built um, systems to support those sales and marketing efforts, and they haven't built teams, you know, that of, of diverse individuals to fill out what we would all consider to be a company. And so we decided to do something about this. We said this, you know, one, for our own purposes, which were, hey, we want to make sure that our companies are successful. But two, we wanted to create um, sort of a, a new way for the venture capital, entrepreneurial, and limited partner investing communities to think about startups, which is to stop talking about them as series C or A, B, C. These are terrible proxies for company maturity. They really tell you nothing about what's going on inside that company. We decided to put metrics against these stages, these value inflection points across this traction gap framework, label these, put metrics against them, amount of capital needed, the amount of velocity, because you only get a certain amount of time to go from one value inflection point to another if you expect to get financed, and then to put tactics, strategies, and, and, and other things that other companies similar to those early stage companies um, perform when they were early stage. So what did Benioff do when he had just reached MVP? What did Phil Fernandez at Marketo do when they had launched their first product. You know, what were the steps they took? Turn those into plays and create the first operating playbook for early stage startups. So that way we could remove a lot of the guesswork from these great product teams and turn them into great companies. And so that's the strategy that we embarked upon. And we said, this is good in several ways. One, we speak differently than any other venture capital firm. We use this traction gap framework in the form of, we use it in the form of a diagnostic. We, we assess a team. They go through a process where they answer a bunch of questions online. That generates a bunch of analytics and a diagnostic. We put them through the, a Jeffrey Moore um, workshop where we analyze those issues. And then we come out with a traction gap action plan with our portfolio companies around product, revenue, team, and system deficiencies. And then we partner with a bunch of different groups to solve those problems, to help solve those problems with them. A good example, John Baird, who is Steve Jobs' coach, who's currently Tim Cook's coach, Phil Knight, a bunch of other people that we have all heard of. John is a Silicon Valley icon in terms of team and coaching. He's one of our partners with the Traction Gap Institute, which is this separate entity we've sponsored to work with and partner with our groups our, our own portfolio companies as they come out of this traction gap diagnostic process. So we use it um, to help our own companies. We use it to generate awareness and interest in what we're doing as a venture firm um, to create, because we're new, we have to create a brand. So we use it by creating events. We just held one at IDO on product. Um, 
we vary, whether it's product team, revenue, or systems. We, we kind of vary the topics over the course of a year. And we hold workshops. Some of those are proprietary to just our portfolio companies, and some are available to anybody who would like to come. But effectively, it becomes a way for us to get great deal flow, get introduced to um, a lot of really great entrepreneurs. And in many ways, it's a way for us to give back to the entrepreneurial community because there really hasn't been anything like this in the past. So that's kind of what that's what we're up to here at Wildcat. Wow, that sounds fantastic. I want to definitely take part in some of those events and programs. Um, so let me ask you, I guess, specifically about sort of, I guess, one of the, the pillars, I guess, or where it fits in. Um, I'm curious, right? We're, you know, particularly talking about marketing. Like, what is the role then of marketing, right, in this go-to-market function, I'm kind of guessing that fits in your your revenue pillar, right, um, as well as, I guess, you know, systems and, and teams. Kind of how do you think about the role of marketing in a startup and when should a company be beginning to think about that? So, um, you know, marketing is a, a very broad spectrum of things. Um, yep. And uh, it's what makes the it what ma- it's what I believe makes marketing an interesting career. I mean, I started on the technical side and gravitated towards marketing, but it could be product marketing, right? It could be marketing communications, it could be demand gen, content. It's really you know it's a it's a spectrum of things, um, and that's a fantastic question because um, the first value inflection point on the traction gap framework is something called minimum viable category. And that is a strategic marketing question that you as a company need to ask yourself. That is, what category am I creating or what category am I redefining? Because in, if you read a book called Play Bigger, I'll give a plug to my good friend Christopher Lockhead. If you read the book Play Bigger, you, they make a strong case that 76% of all profits go to a category king. And so the question is, well, how big is that category? So that makes, what is this company even worth doing? And then if it is, how do you become a category king? Well, if you try to enter someone else's kingdom um, in it, that is an existing category, uh, without redefining it or creating a new one, you're, it's fraught with peril. It's very challenging to challenge a category king. So the first role, the first place that marketing takes effect, and this is really around the CEO and the team, is to figure out what category you're in. And category is just another name for a problem. What problem are you solving? What's the name of that problem? You know, and it's you you might think this is relatively simple to put a few words on paper, but think about what Benioff did with with the sign no software. Now, was Salesforce really no software? I thought, you know, if we take a look, I bet you there's a lot of engineers employed today, and there were even when Mark started. That wasn't the message. The message was, without putting a bunch of technical gobbledygook out there around multi-tenancy and all these technical bits, instead, in one simple sign, he conveyed to potential customers, hey, Installing, implementing, and bringing up enterprise software or really business software of any kind is really hard, it's really expensive, and you shouldn't have to do it. So in that one sign, he conveyed a new category. Now, he chose to go after the CR, an existing category of applications, CRM, with his first um, product offerings, but what he really was conveying was a new category of software. 
You know, if we think about Steve Jobs, Steve didn't create PCs. He certainly didn't create a phone. He didn't create a watch. He didn't create a tablet. He didn't create a lot of things, at least as initial categories. What he did was redefine or reimagine what those categories could be and was very clever about explaining what they did to consumers. So there's an example of a business category and a consumer category that were completely created by two very, very clever people, and that's all around strategic marketing. This is the most important thing you can do as a team at the very get-go, is to figure this problem out. Because if you don't, the likelihood of success of your company is, is pretty low, and the reason for even doing your company is also equally low. So I think that's where marketing begins, Jill, is really at the, at the core, at the very beginning of the company, before you even lay down a line of code. What's the name of your category? How are you defining it? What's the, what's the current state of the market? What's the new state after people use your category or use the product in your category? And, and so why does it matter? So it's, I think marketing's really important. So does that mean then, you know, you've you've done this work at the beginning, right? And you are kind of, you know, build this vision for this and this definition for this category. Do you then go and hire a VP of marketing and do you start marketing your product? Sort of how does that kind of play out, shall we say? Or how would you think about sort of the 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 staffing for marketing and the kind of investment that you might do then once you have this idea for this category? So with most of these early stage technology products, I mean, the, the biggest mistake that most of our companies make is that we give them a bunch of capital. They're in a, they have a prototype or they have an idea of creating a product because we, we actually invest at the ideation stage. Um, the biggest mistake they can possibly make is to start hiring a go-to-market team before they're, they're ready. And in the value inflection, the, in the traction gap framework, that point isn't really until either it's it's just prior to a, a point called minimum viable repeatability. That is, as the, as the original team, you can't outsource, that is, delegate this, this task of demand gen, positioning, et cetera, to a separate group until you're convinced that you understand what the value propositions are, that you've got the right feature sets, that you're beginning to get actually pulled um, as opposed to push. Um, and the only way to do that is for you to personally engage in that process. Now, you can do this if it's a B2C company. It's, you can use um, statistics and math and conversion rates more and, and, and other methodologies to, um, that don't really require a team because you can see, convers- you can see downloads, you can see um, conversion rates, you can see daily active, monthly, weekly active usage rates. So that's, you can apply more um, technology to that problem. If you're B2B, you have, uh, it's, it's our advice and I think it, it remains good advice to, that the management team, the, the, the product team needs to go out and meet face to face with potential prospects during the beta program, alpha program, beta program, et cetera, everybody that's on the team needs to go into these, quote, sales calls and listen to what what our customers or the, the people who are using our products tell us. Because it's only once we really have it down where we know that we're beginning to use a certain set of words 
in a certain presentation with a certain demo, demo and we know that that converts to a certain number of, of uh, customers uh, with a high enough ratio, that it becomes even rational to start considering to build a demand gen function um, that that is trying to create awareness and interest. Because the second that you bolt that engine, that you bolt that carburetor onto the company, you begin to suck a lot of gas, and that gas is capital. And that's where most of these companies fail because they bring it on right around MVP, and they begin to spend a lot of capital and what they realize is that their revenue growth doesn't uh, isn't keeping up with their capital ex expenditures, and so they begin to quickly realize that they're running out of capital. Haven't really proven product market, even product market fit. I would say many times, um, and uh, the net result is they they turn back to their their investors from the prior round and said, hey, we need more capital to go forward. And those investors who are typically early stage investors look at the team and say, hey, we do early stage. It's your job to find the next stage investor, the mid-stage investor, and they're expecting to see metrics. They're expecting to see you know, quarter over quarter revenue growth. They're expecting to look at churn rates. They're expecting to see capital, you know, customer acquisition costs and CAC ratios. Yours don't look so great. We're not the people to 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 look to, to tap to, to continue to finance you. This is where this traction gap uh, problem occurs, and this is why companies go out of business because they fail to generate the kind of traction they need because they spent a lot of capital before they should have. So it's our advice that until you reach MBR, you really shouldn't be bringing on um, expensive uh, resources. You might bring a VP of marketing who is strategic, who can help create the value propositions and all those aspects and elements, but you certainly don't want to bring on a sales team. You don't really want to bring on people below that group or below that VP um, uh, because all that is expense and all that expense is not necessary at, at that moment of, in the company's maturity life cycle. One of the things that's so great about being on the C-Suite Radio Network is our sponsors. That's right, the people who actually believe in this podcast so much that they're willing to put good money and products and services down to help promote it. So with that, I hope you will take a listen to one of our valuable sponsors right now. Well, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. And now we are going to get back to our exciting interview with Bruce Cleveland and Venture Capital Redefined. So I'm kind of curious about this because you mentioned earlier about the kind of the, the importance of velocity and that you have a finite amount of time to kind of get from here to there. But you yeah. also want to control your capital and not invest too much and turn up the gas too early. And I'm curious sort of how you think about that or if you have advice about sort of how you manage across those or what you, what you would recommend to founders to do and to focus on in terms of trying to kind of um, uh, gain that, that traction and kind of, uh, you know, cross that gap um, quickly enough, but without spending too much. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to roll out some some actual numbers here. So because this is what I think is the most um, uh, uh, relevant to this traction gap 
uh, these concepts because it's one thing to have a framework. It's another thing to have a set of targets to aim for. So we unpacked um, the S1s and, and met with dozens and dozens of companies. So what I'm going to talk about right now are B2B, uh, specifically B2B SaaS companies, not the B2C ones. We're still doing a bunch of work on those. So um, I'm being more specific to B2B SaaS. Um, but here's kind of the here's what you can um, can target for. You get roughly, um, and by the way, these numbers come from like I said, they come because these are the numbers that Salesforce, Marketo, Coupa, Proofpoint, Workday, all these companies we all know that have been successful. The numbers I'm giving you are are numbers that are are the averages of all those what we would call successful. Um, public SaaS companies um, when they were private. So you get as a as a B two B SaaS company, you get around twelve to eighteen months, and this is mostly for applications um, as opposed to infrastructure. Infrastructure, you could take three or four years to get to this point, but um, but more importantly, um, on average, of the companies that are public in the SaaS space. It takes about um, around 12 to 18 months to get from ideation to an initial product release that we might call an alpha. The uh, amount of capital you raise for that, I mean, this is where seed rounds happen, right? They're, or, you know, and these seeds now can be quite big. They can be, yeah. you know... They can be 200k, but they can also be 5 million. So it's a, it's, that's why I say it's a misnomer to use these rounds. Um, the the name of the round as a as a proxy for company maturity. So you get 12 to 18 months, and then from initial product release, you get about six months to polish it. That is, you get about six months to get to a minimum viable product. And the cool thing about all this is the clock really doesn't start ticking in terms of when the investor community begins to um, score you until you declare MVP. So that's all within your control. So you get somewhere around, you know, 24, maybe um, 24 months, maybe a little bit longer, two and a half years, to build that first product and get it polished up and to really begin to say, okay, we're in market, We've, we're launching the company and we're selling. And again, remember I said, we're not, we haven't bolted in sales and marketing, et cetera. We might have a, maybe one SDR, we might have a VP of marketing, we might do a little bit of demand gen, but more importantly, what we're really doing is trying to secure our first base of customers. All right, so from MVP, that is when you declare ready, set, go, here's some other numbers that you need to know. Um, and actually, I came up with a different set of numbers. I call them kind of the, the Fibonacci series of SaaS. Um, I think Battery has a better thing. They call it T2D3, triple twice, double three times. So again, these are numbers that have been revenue growth rates um, that the vast majority of these companies that we all know is successful have achieved. So that's what we're all being measured against. That's what every startup will be held accountable for. So once you declare MVP, one year later, you need to be at a million in re- annual recurring revenue. Another year later, you need to end that year at three million. Another year later, so year three, you need to be at 10 million of ARR. Another year later, year four, at 25, and in year five, you need to be at 50 million of ARR. That's what the top 30% of SaaS companies have done, and that's what's going to get investors interested in you. This traction gap period, though, goes from basically $0 through your first few years, 
and effectively um, MVR or minimum viable repeatability is about a year and a half after MVP and it's two million of annual recurring revenue. That's where you need to be. And another year after that, you need to be at six million of annual recurring revenue or about 500K of MRR. These are all super important numbers to know because you need to know the amount of time, you need to know what revenue you're trying to get at, that, and if you can achieve, you, if you can be above that um, revenue slope, you will get financed. And not only will you get financed, you will optimize the likelihood that you get financed, but you'll also minimize the amount of valuation that you'll be diluted by. So, or you'll maximize the valuation, you'll, you'll minimize the amount of dilution that you'll get. So this is why we, we take each of our companies and we, uh, we write their operating plans with them to fit this curve. So that way we know what we're targeting. So if we talk about MVP to MVR, or $2 million in annual recurring revenue, we know we need to be there in roughly a year and a half. You now can begin to say, okay, well, how many companies, how many customers do I need to be at a million of recurring revenue or two million in recurring revenue? Well, that depends upon what your ACVs are, right? And then, well, how much capital am I going to need to get those customers because they don't just show up? Well, that would be in my customer acquisition cost number. Hmm. If I'm awesome at acquiring a company, that might be a CAC ratio of one. That is, I get paid back in one year for the amount of sales and marketing dollars that I spend. Well, I'm telling you, most companies aren't awesome. This is where the eye-opening happens with most entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, holy moly, we got to get to two million of ARR. We know it probably costs us five bucks of sales and marketing to, to generate a dollar in bookings. Holy cow, how do we raise enough capital to go do that? Because remember, sales and marketing is only half the cost of a company. You've got to add in R&D, GA. So you can now begin to start assessing the amount of capital you need to raise and these um, inflection points that you need to hit. Because the most amount of damage that you are going to cause to yourself and your company is if you don't raise enough capital to get to the next value inflection point. If you fail the likelihood of you being able to raise capital is very significantly diminished and the amount you're going to pay for that capital, very, very high. And so it's critical that companies know how to target this and how to deconstruct their operating plan in order to achieve these milestones. So that's why it's super important to do this. That is super helpful. Super helpful. So, um, you know, we're running to the end of our time. So I kind of want to give you I guess the opportunity. So based on all this, right, you've done a ton of research here. You've, you've been in these companies, you've advised these companies, you've set up these operating plans. Like if you could leave our listeners and you could leave startup founders with one, you know, one or two pieces of advice, a lesson to take away, something you've seen done um, by these companies that's made a big difference or to avoid doing that you see them doing often, kind of, you know, what would that be? Um, I, th I think the, the massive failure that occurs is, um, is lack of true market research. That is the lack of the team's um, investment in time and effort into really 
um, going into a statistically relevant set of not just friends and family type of customers, but beyond that, people who will be brutally honest with you about the features, because a lot of companies will tell you, your friends especially that you know, oh, we love that concept, we love those features, et cetera. And the second that you go to actually build, you build a product and you bring it to them, suddenly the checkbook's dried up. The, um, it's critically important to find is to come up with the feature prioritization list uh, that solves the true business problem that people that you think they have and that they claim they have. You need to do invest more time doing that. Do not succumb to the requirements to begin generating revenue too early. So keep your expenses as low as you possibly can. Find, you know, get a statistically relevant sampling of the market that you believe you want to go after with people you don't know before you ever ever lay a single line of code and before you ever spend a dollar on rent or on salaries. That, that, if you can do that, the likelihood, and find that minimum viable category, you can do that, you're going to dramatically improve the odds of success with your company. That is great advice and something I don't think I've seen most companies do. Yeah, um, I have a few ideas around that that, we, that we've discussed. So. <laughs> um, anything, anything you want to share here or you want to hold that for future? Well, I do think there's an opportunity to enable companies to be able to do this. It's a problem that I've looked at. I was chief product officer at Civil Systems. I ran engineering, a big engineering division at Apple and at, and at Oracle. Um, this is a huge problem. It, it existed 30 years ago. It existed 20, 10. It exists now. And I think it, it's, it's responsible for why most, roughly 80, 90% of all products fail in the industry. So um, I've created my own company. Uh, we will talk about it uh, later this year to see if we can help companies solve this problem. And I think it is solvable uh, using some modern technology uh, approaches that weren't available to us just even a few years ago. And I'm very excited about being able to bring this company to market. So uh, stay tuned. Anybody who's interested in some early market research and learning about a way to do that, contact Bruce. Exactly. Uh, Thank you for listening to the podcast. I love listening to Bruce. Bruce has such a great voice about the VC community. He has such a great voice of someone who's grown up in and around places like Siebel Systems and then went on and did these investing and then founded his own venture firm and how he's really thought about this as the market has grown and changed from out and from under and around him. If you are interested in listening and hearing more from Bruce, well, he is a pretty easy man to find. You can do it on Twitter and that's Bruce VC. Very clever. I love that. Bruce B-R-U-C-E VC. You can also find him on LinkedIn as Bruce Cleveland or just Wildcat Ventures, which is wildcat.vc. Thank you for listening. I'll be back with part three of our investor podcast series and more to come. Until then, hope you have a great week. You've been listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. For past episodes, blogs, and more, visit us at foundersplace.co. That's foundersplace.co. And thanks for listening to the Founders Place podcast, the place where exceptional founders grow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.